You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he'll take the high road, and I'll take the low road, and he'll be in Scotland before I am, I guess. Uh, it's Mr. Jeff McLarge. Hey, everybody. Hey, Bill. How you doing? I am fine. I'm good. My arm is a little sore. I have tennis elbow, so I actually have had to take some time off from the gym, and I'm not happy about it. Oh, so you play a lot of tennis then? Yes. Yep. Doing a lot of Wimbledoning, is that it? <laughs> I just like yelling at people. <laughs> yeah, I was so moved by our little segment on John McEnroe a few weeks back that I just started yelling at people. I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to buy a tennis racket if this is pulling. I'm going to pull it all together. I like that. It's a good plan. What's going on with you? I have uh, recently had a life milestone. I don't have many life milestones, I don't think, but this is mm-hmm. one uh, worthy of mention is that I no longer have children my daughter my my daughter margaret had turned 18 years old on oh 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 <laughs> last week i thought it was like a, a kidnapping situation yeah it was no nothing nefarious they just aged out of being children and oh, it's okay. really weird to think that like letters that come to them from like my insurance company they they don't come to the parents of or to the parent of or the guardian of anybody yeah. anymore it just goes to them and i'm like is that something i should look at they're like no <laughs> damn it <laughs> it's less like like I, they still ian and margaret both still live here but right. it's like it's like i live with two roommates who don't know how to start the dishwasher but it's really really weird to not have that i don't have the say anymore i don't have to be involved in like education decisions or medical decisions or if meg goes to the doctors for a checkup and they want to prescribe her, you know, I don't know, something for something. They just right. do it. They don't have to ask me anything. They don't have to tell me anything. I have to keep begging yeah. for information. It's really, really, really strange. Yeah, I remember you saying, I think it was last summer you were talking that, you know, Megan expressed interest in getting a septum piercing and you're like, not you, not until you turn 18. Yeah. You know? And there it is. It's like, there- well... <laughs> I mean, I'm quite sure she didn't do it on her 18th birthday, but... Um, well, she did get a piercing on her 18th birthday, and so did I. I got my ear re-pierced as in oh, solidarity um, of her turning 18. And when I, you know, I, she's like, are you going to really do it? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. It's it's not really that complicated, Meg. It's, you know, pretty easy. <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's amazing that you're going to go. So when we went, I said I wanted to get my nipple pierced, but I wanted to get it pierced in my ear. I thought that was very funny. <laughs> So I got my belly button pierced in my ear, my nipple too. My uh, my ear is now pierced again. I have to say, I, I have a lot of friends with, with a lot of kids. And yours is top ten, top five, maybe even top three of just like the great relationship that you have with your kids. 
Like I've never seen them like be, uh, you know, angsty with you. No, you know? they they generally pretty well adjusted. I mean, you know, my my kids are like anybody else, and in this world where it's a different world than it was when I was their age, for sure. But of course, I hope so. You know, it is what it is. It doesn't change the way that we communicate with each other, or cook together, or clean the house together, which right generally just me most of the time. But, you know, we have, we've always had a very good and open relationship so that we can have conversations about these difficult things and it doesn't lead to a lot of, like, furious anger and recriminations or anything like that. Sure. Made it easy for me to, to know that, you know, I, I'm going to get them to the launch pad and then they, they're kind of on their own, but they're relatively well-adjusted, especially for everything they've been through and the lives that they've had up to now. Right, right, right. Uh, before we get on to the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. Yeah, so I alluded I alluded to it with my intro. There is a song. It's a is Scottish. There? Yeah, there is a Scottish traditional folk song. And colloquially, in America, we call it, you take the high road and I'll take the low road. But what is the name of that song? Huh. It's... Not the, that's not the name of it. Yeah. yeah, I figured as much. Uh, I guess at the end of the show, I'll tell you, even if it kilts me. All right. All right, so this is the week beginning, March the 20th, and I uh, will let you start this week. Your turn to start. Oh, good. March 20th, 1982. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts get their very first number one hit with I Love Rock and Roll that goes number one and stays there for seven mm-hmm. weeks. Wow. Did you know, Bill, that... Joan Jett and the Blackhearts' first number one hit, I Love Rock and Roll, is not an original song to Joan Jett and the Blackhearts? Uh, I I do. I did know that. But I only, in the lo- you know in the big scale of things, I only found out that it was a cover, I don't know, probably like 10 years ago. The, it, I found out that it was a cover because of the internet. I didn't know that ago. when I was a kid. Yeah. I learned that this was a cover song approximately two hours ago. <laughs> That's uh, that's when I found out and learned that it was a cover. It was a cover by a British oh, yeah. band from the 1970s called Arrow, which is only like three or four years ahead, uh, or three or four years older than than the Joan Jett version of the song. But they sound very similar, although Joan Jett's is way harder. Uh, not surprisingly, because there's a hard rock band. But uh, right. yeah, I had no idea it was a cover. Which means yeah. literally every song that she's ever had this been, I think it's been a cover song, right? Yeah, except for, like, I, I think the only one that comes to mind is I Hate Myself for Loving You. Yeah, but, that's... But, yeah, like, 99% of the stuff she does is all cover songs. Honestly, she's just a really overpaid bar band, if you think about it. Well, and, you know, hey, I, I sang along with that song for longer than the seven weeks that it was at the top of the charts. It was the very first song I ever recorded on my boombox off the radio. Oh, wow. Really? That was the first, yeah, that was the first song I ever recorded on a blank tape. No. Oh. I hate that song. <laughs> I know we try not to I know we try not to do negative stuff on the show, but I honestly can't stand that song. Like as soon as it starts off, I'm like, oh God. But whenever I was doing my and I'm still doing a different version of it, but like the album a day kind of yeah. thing. I went back and and one of the one of the albums that I listened to was the I Love Rock and Roll album from Joan mm-hmm. Jett and the Blackhearts, and I mean it's all covers, but 
she plays them well, and that's a great album. It's a yeah. great, fun album. I saw her live. She does like nine songs. It's all the same nine songs you hear if you listen to rock, rock and roll radio for two days. Yeah. But I didn't care. I had a great time. She was a ton of fun yeah. to watch. She looked like a little ant, a little painted red ant that was about eight miles away from me at the TD Bank North Garden. Yeah. I knew that she was Joan Jett and none of the other ants on stage were Joan Jett because she had a guitar and was in red. <laughs> That's how I could tell. All right. Moving on to the 21st. March 21st of 2006, the very first tweet goes out on Twitter. Yeah. It is by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. It simply just says, just setting up my Twitter. So I think when everybody who sets up a Twitter account ten sends up first. Yep. Setting up on Twitter. And then five yeah. minutes later, they're following the most horrible people on Twitter. <laughs> 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 Twitter's a weird it's a weird organism for social media and is way more popular with people who are in the media than it is in I don't know anybody who follows anything on Twitter other than what I hear in the media of people who follow things on Twitter and critique media and politics that way. So I don't know what whatever news programs I listen to and I don't listen to many, they will talk about Twitter and I'm I'm no longer on Twitter. Right. Politics aside, whenever Elon Musk announced that he was going to buy Twitter, like it, like the deal was months away from going through, as soon as he announced that he was going to buy Twitter, I deleted my account. And it has nothing right. to do with Elon Musk or his politics or anything like that because I don't get involved with stuff like that. Yeah. I just don't like the idea of like millionaires, billionaires, and you know somebody with all this money just being able to buy whatever the hell they want. You know, so it's like, well, you bought it, fine. I don't want it anymore. Well, he's pretty uh, much bought no. it and crashed it into the side of a mountain as if he just bought a plane and did yeah. not apply it. But I never really used it all that much anyway. I didn't follow a lot of people. It was more like me, just like a notepad for me to write down random thoughts that I had at the time. For me, I got hamstrung by the what was the original 140 characters. Like, I, I fart more than 140 characters. I burp more than 140 characters. I warm my yep. thumbs up typing 50 characters with more than 140 characters. You know, brevity is wit, but 140 characters is like, you might as well not say anything. And I found it really easy to just not say anything or pay attention to it. And ultimately, I don't have it installed even on my phone. I haven't had it installed on a phone of mine for 10 years, maybe. I don't use it anymore. I never really paid much attention to it anyway. As a matter of fact, one of the random tweets that I sent out was, oh, yeah, that's right. I have a Twitter account. <laughs> Yes, it's like my Instagram account, which is pretty much just a picture handwritten that says, I don't use Instagram. So. <laughs> uh, we use Instagram over here at Twibbly. Uh, yes, Daily memes every day. Yep, you can follow us on Instagram and not interact with me. You'll interact with me, though. So. <laughs> you can interact with Bill and Wild. Actually, sometimes I get messages on Instagram and they think they're talking to you and I have to, I have to <laughs> correct them. It's like, no, 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 this is Bill. I control the account. That's funny. All right. Yep. All right, moving on to the 22nd. March 22nd, 1982, Iron Maiden released their first record with fronted by Bruce Dickinson called The Number of the Beast, a genre-defining piece of heavy metal that is still mentioned in the top 10 of like heavy metal records even today. Uh, oh, when yeah. people make lists of, of all the heavy metal records that have come before or since. 
this record is still in the top five and top ten. And if you go see Iron Maiden, they still play a, quite a number of songs from this album. Yes. And you want to see a crowd just, like, lose their ever-loving mind the second that woe to you, O <laughs> Earth and Sea starts. I mean, everybody knows. Here it comes. Yep. Here it comes. That's a great, but what, great album. Yeah. What's funny about this album is, I mean, there's a lot of staples that still get played live. Children of the Damned, Prisoner, yep. 22 Acacia Avenue, yep. title track, Run to the Hills is on this one, Yep. and Hallowed Be Thy Name. What's really funny about this album is the starting song, the first song that you hear, Invaders. Yeah. I don't think they've ever played that song live. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I don't think they played Gangland live either. Gangland is uh, one of the filler tracks on here, but it's still a good song. Yeah. Yeah. It just isn't one that you look forward to. But for such a monumental album that you, you know, you would think that, you know, all fi- all killer no filler and they would at least start off with a bang, but no, they start off with a song that nobody knows. Yeah. I don't know why it's organized the way that it is. Uh, it doesn't matter because the songs on it that are the great tracks so furiously overshadow that you you like you said you can't even you don't even remember that Invaders is the first song 9 out of 10 times if someone asks. And this is the album with, like that you had mentioned introduced Bruce Dickinson to the world. There was a uh, a music reviewer who referred to his voice as a human air raid siren and he wasn't saying that to be nice. No. And Actually, they've taken that and run with it, and that Bruce Dickinson actually does take it as a compliment, <laughs> even though it was meant as an insult. I, I've been fortunate enough to see them twice, once on the Legacy of the Beast tour, which or it was, wasn't called that at the time. It was a redo of Seventh Son of a Seventh Son show from 88, uh-huh. and that was in 2012. Yep. He had been diagnosed with, with cancer on his larynx, so his voice was a little bit lower. It's a little bit lower on the records that came out at that time, too, like The Final Frontier and The Book of yep. Souls. And then I saw I him after I, that. I think the, the cancer was in his mouth under his tongue. I don't think it was throat cancer. And then I saw him on The Book of Souls tour when he had had it irradiated and, and shrunk and removed. Yep. And he, he definitely sounded like not a whole octave higher, but he could get way into the high notes again. When they yep. finally stopped doing Book of Soul songs for the rest of the audience, it was like, oh, Jesus, the red and the black. Yeah. You know, and they started with like Aces High. He could get way up there again, and the place just went bananas. Whenever I, I saw them on the original Seven Sun tour in 88, yep. I saw them in 91 on the No Prayer for the Dying tour. And then I went many, many, many years, and then I went see them um, at Great Woods on the Best of the Beast tour or Legacy of the Beast, whatever it was called. Yep. And. They came out and they opened up with Aces High and his voice wasn't warmed up yet. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a long night. But yeah. like three songs in, he was all warmed up and they sounded fantastic. Yeah, they are they are great when I saw them. I loved it. Okay. All right, moving on to the 23rd. March 23rd, 1857. The first commercial passenger elevator is open to the public. Oh. Uh, it's, yeah. Alicia Graves Otis's passenger elevator had a safety device that prevented the fall of the cab if the cable broke. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the counterweights. Oh, that's good to know. It's that's yeah. probably why I think they were called safety elevators, right? When they had that installed back in the early early days. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed uh, to the like the non the non safety elevator. Oh, you can ride in this one. No, it's all right. I'll wait. He actually demonstrated it by cutting the cable. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) 
That's some faith in your product right there. Oh, you think I won't do this, huh? Go the hacksaw up on top of the cabin. <laughs> I can see it. Jeez. So years ago, we used to rent out spaces for bands to practice yes. in this old, like, disused factory. And there was a freight elevator, you know, that we would use to get the equipment in and out of the building and stuff right. like that. One day, the, that was not a safety elevator. And no. one day, the counterweight cables broke, and my my friend Rob was in it, and it fell, like, two or three stories, and he ended up breaking his leg. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Unsafe elevator. Yeah. That very same elevator, before he fell and hurt himself, I actually got stuck in it. Like, it wouldn't move mm -hmm. for, like, 45 minutes, dude, just stuck oh. in there. Yeah. Yeah, like they had to, that. Yeah they had, to, yeah, they had to call the landlord of the building to come and, like, you know, I don't know what happened, but we were stuck in between floors. We couldn't get out. Yeah. 45 minutes, dude. 45 that, minutes is a long time on a treadmill. It's even longer when you're stuck in a, in a freight elevator. Oh, I bet. And, you know, I remember the mill building, so it's not like there was a lot of foot traffic in there either. And this is before cell phones were invented. No, right? exactly. Like, it was like, I'm, I'm over there yelling up the shaft. It was me and, like, there was one other person in the freight elevator. And we're, like, yelling up the shaft, hoping that somebody's going to hear us, and somebody right. didn't hear us. And we're like, yep, hey, elevator's stuck. Got to call the landlord. So they have to, like, walk walk down the fire escape right. and go to the 7-Eleven around the corner and call the landlord. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. I mean, in retrospect, see, another yeah, one wasn't yeah. the one trapped in there. But, yep. yep. But we have an elevator at the, the building that I work in. I work in a, in a factory. And we only have two stories in our factory. Well, it, it's two floors, but it's, like, 20 feet between stories because it's a manufacturing facility. Right. And I take I take the elevator in the morning to go from the bottom floor to the second floor where my my office cubicle is, because I'm lazy. The rest of the day I walk <laughs> up and down the stairs, but in the morning I'm like, you know what? There's an elevator in this building for a reason. It's to be convenient. And if I want to wait an extra ten seconds to go twenty feet up in the air, I'm going to do it. Darn it! <laughs> I do it every day. Wee! I do. I make I make that noise and everything. It's awful. I'm like a little kid. Like, oh, I touched the button. It goes, bing. Like, oh. All right, moving on to the 24th. March 24th, 1999. The film The Matrix, directed by the Wachowski siblings, starring Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne and Carrie Ann Moss, makes its debut. And it's easy to look back at 1999 and The Matrix and think, yep, that was, that was like a real good science fiction movie. One of the first cyberpunk movies that really had some money behind it. But the impact of the visual design of that movie was felt in every single thing you could think of when that movie premiered until so things like bullet time and super slow-mo. Uh, the, the whole premise of the movie has become like such a meme. Yes. You know, it's like a, a lot of a lot of these conspiracy theorist people. Or the people on the uh, basically the people on Twitter um, that <laughs> yes <laughs> that feel like they know more than everybody else they'll make that reference like oh the red pill and the blue pill or yeah. you know yes. the glitch in the matrix and this right. that and the other yeah this movie was groundbreaking not just for its visual special effects but just I don't know like the whole zeitgeist just shifted. It brought the story beats for the idea 
the plot idea of like everyone living in a computer program, a simulation into sort of yeah. popular culture, which it really wasn't before to the point where, again, it got aped and used in other media. Half of the band Muse's output is pretty much, you know, like sort of retreads over stuff that was in the matrix to the point uh-huh. where they released a, a whole album called simulation theory, which is see if you can guess what the, what the story is about, Bill being in a computer uh, program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, now that I think about it, with everybody thinking, in, including Muse apparently, that this whole, you know, life is a simulation is plausible, it's not completely different from how prior to The Exorcist, Ouija boards were just like fun little party games, but all of a sudden they became demon portals to hell because of The Exorcist. And The Matrix really kind of got that going for the whole life isn't what they tell you conspiracy mindset, right. you know? Right. And and God reality, damn you, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> reality can be manipulated to make life good or bad, you know, and someone else is in control of it, etc. blah blah blah. And that that that's those are all older science fiction tropes, but they were done so well in this film. Uh-huh. That even for science fiction fans like me, it was it was super fresh and exciting. I remember seeing it in the cinema and just being astonished and how good it was, especially the ending, which was pretty much the beginning of what, what should have been a Superman trilogy. Climbs out of the, and then, the phone booth and flies away. Yep, I saw the first one on you know DVD, and I was like, huh, that was a movie. It's not really my genre. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen the sequels, although I've heard they, uh, they pale in comparison. They are wildly uneven in storytelling, and they're way too long. And, oh. But, you know, there's like an, an animated segment called Animatrix, which is a whole bunch of different animators who pulled together stories that are related around the central ideas in the first film. That was great. Mm. So, totally worth a view. The short segments in it are, are a lot of fun to watch. And then the Wachowskis went on to do some other stuff that, depending on who you are and what your, you know, your media savvy is, are, are good or bad or whatever. I really loved Speed Racer. Other people thought it was terrible, but... I like Speed Racer as a cartoon, so I like the mm-hmm. live-action version of the cartoon. All right, moving on to the 25th. Okay, this is <laughs> this is going to go in a couple of different directions, but the 25th is one of our weird holidays. 25th is National Waffle Day. Sounds I like do a- enjoy waffles, Jeff. I like breakfast as a as a rule, as a guideline. I, Sometimes I-, I like pancakes. Sometimes I like my pancakes to be square with little grids in them <laughs> a little bit more toasty with some grids in them to hold the yep. syrup i received a waffle iron as a gift from my children before they became adults a few years back yep. and they had like saved and and worked with another family to get a waffle iron for me for father's day so that on father's day morning i could make them waffles <laughs> and that's I made, industrious you have industrious, industrious children i don't know how they managed to scrape together the 30 bucks but they did yeah and I still have the waffle iron, and I still make waffles in it now and then. I really like waffles. Living up in New England, yes, we do not have uh, the luxury of the rest of the country of having waffle houses. Now, I go on many, many, many road trips. Yes. I've been up and down the East Coast dozens and dozens of times. I've driven out to the Midwest dozens of times, and even all the way across the country a couple of times. And up until maybe two years ago, I had never been to a Waffle House. I had heard the legend, but I had never been. Mm. 
I'd never heard of them until I visited Tennessee. And then they're, they're like all over the place. I didn't realize how big a chain they were. I didn't know that they were all over the country, I guess. South yeah. Of, it's like south of Virginia. I think they stood around Virginia or maybe Maryland. Um, maybe. Yeah. And went to one and, and had a had a fantastic time. I thought the food was was really good. And I was amazed at how clean it was and how everyone was like, they would go from like placing food down to immediately wiping things. And everyone was moving all the time. It was really fun to watch how the cooking was yeah. done. Yeah, yeah everybody talks about Waffle House, like the people that live out there in those areas that when they would talk about Waffle House, they talk about like the fights more than anything else, you know, right, because right. like any place that's open 24 hours and serves breakfast 24 hours, you're going to get a particular clientele <laughs> at two and three o'clock on oh, Friday yeah. night. You get the you get the drunken bar fight crowd. I wasn't there during yes. drunken, the drunken bar fight special. I was there like mid morning, so it was all uh-huh. you know senior citizens and and people who were, had hangovers. Uh, yep. And it was it was great. But I have definitely heard stories of you know kung fu quality karate matches taking place in the midst of their dining room tables. So my friend Taylor, uh, who lives out in Ohio. When we were hanging out at a convention in Chicago, there was a Denny's nearby, which is a, a whole other story that she's probably laughing about right now. Um, but we had gone to Denny's, and she had never even, like, I don't think she had ever heard of a Denny's, or she at least had never been. And she really, really liked it. So when mm-hmm. I went to go hang out with her in Cincinnati, um, we traded. And right. we went to a Waffle House. And yes. yeah, it was fine. The waffles were good. <laughs> uh, but I had told her, you know, the same reputation that Waffle House has, the Denny's that we used to have in Fall River had the same reputation. As a matter right. of fact, that was something we used to do. We used to hang out at this donut shop because it was open all night. Right. And then about like 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, we'd go, hey, you want to go catch the floor show? And that meant let's go to Denny's and watch right. the drunks beat the out of each other. <laughs> I always liked Denny's because it, it didn't matter what meal you offered. They would say, like, do you want do you want cheese sauce on that? And it didn't matter if you <laughs> ordered, like, uh, omelet or pancakes or a cheeseburger. Just a or, cup of coffee, please. Right, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> do, you want, do you want a side of cheese? Like, what kind of cheese goes with this? Like, melted? Uh, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm sold. <laughs> All right, and let's wrap up the week. March 26, 1975, the film Tommy, based on the rock opera by one of my favorite bands, The Who, directed by Kent Russell, insane director, premieres in London. <laughs> and I never had the opportunity to see Tommy until it made its way to cable TV. Like, I don't know if it was Showtime or the movie channel or whatever, but it was like the mid-1980s that it showed up there and ran for like a whole summer in heavy rotation. And I watched it every single time I could get myself in front of it. That movie is nuts. <laughs> I, I love, I love yeah. the Who. I love Tommy. I love the movie Tommy. I love the album. I was actually in a very ambitious, and that's the best I can say about our <laughs> production of Tommy. I love. It. I absolutely love it. But that movie is cuckoo bananas. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, there was this dude that lived in uh, like a na- a neighboring neighborhood, and his name was Tommy. And I remember it was like we're asking, you know, typical little kid questions. What's your favorite movie? And he said his favorite movie was Tommy because that was his name, right? Right. And whenever it like popped up on HBO, my friend Craig, who's uh, a Twibbly listener, 
Uh, he's probably laughing about it right now, uh, just like Taylor was about Denny's. Anyway, uh, Craig was like, this this is the movie? This is the... He, we used to call him Coochie. Coochie? This was his favorite movie? This movie sucks. <laughs> no, I loved it. I, I loved all the... I loved the way that, that Ken Russell stacked the cast with musicians. It's the one place that I was happy to see Eric Clapton in a role and some of the versions of the who songs like the guest appearances and all that yeah. some of them are spirited let's mm. put it that way uh but some of them are absolutely monumental i love the way that eric clapton retooled eyesight to the blind i love tina turner's version of acid queen right it's iconic and i don't remember the guy's name like he only appeared in a couple of other things uh right he was in Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I guess he has a type. But his version <laughs> his version of Cousin Kevin, I like his version better than the Who's. There, yeah, I said he, it. That that's a real that's a real standout track from the soundtrack too, and one of the better yeah. scenes in the film. That's that's really good. That was really, really good. I don't know who he yeah. is either. I'm surprised he didn't go further than he than he did based on based I, on how good I, that segment was. No, I think the Sergeant Peppers <laughs> did him in, that's why. Hmm. It's hard to, you know, get out of the, the gravitational well of the Bee Gees pretending to be the Beatles. <laughs> um, all right. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. March 20th, 1922, American comedian Carl Reiner, probably best known for his role as the teacher that takes off in vacation uh, at the beginning of summer school. Oh, geez, I, that's <laughs> how long how long ago I, I saw Carl. Yeah. I saw summer school. I didn't even remember that. I remember yep. him as as like the second half of Mel Brooks's two thousand year old man sketch. Yes, him and Mel Brooks started in the business together. Yeah, by the by the time I I realized that Mel Brooks had a comedy partner, Carl Reiner was <laughs> already like elderly, and and not sure. like because I didn't know when I was young, but I mean he was like an he was like a Milton Berle like old comedian when I was a kid. Right. That was a generation and a half or two generations before I was like really media savvy. So, well, he kind of got out of like performing and got into directing. Right. You know, because he did uh, Steve Martin's The Jerk. Mm -hmm. uh, he did Oh God. Yep. He also directed All of Me with uh, again with Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And Lily Tomlin, yeah. Yep. And uh, with Billy Crystal, uh, when Harry met Sally. Right. Yeah, he's done. He's he's more of a director than a showman. Yeah, right. I mean, I remember he was also a, a character on the Dick Van Dyke Show because I watched that in in reruns. But he also used to write for your show of shows, which was like an old Mel Brooks. Yeah, where he Mel actually Brooks created. A, did he, he actually created the Dick Van Dyke Show? Did he? Oh, his, so uh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was on it, and he was one of the writers for it. Yeah, I think he played the creator of the Dick Van Dyke Show on the Dick Van Dyke Show, right? Because that was the show that. Dick Van Dyke wrote for because he was a TV writer. Uh, yes, it was. Too meta. Yeah, it was very Way meta. Too meta. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right, moving on. Uh, okay, March twenty first, nineteen fifty eight. English actor Gary Oldman, who one can do a fantastic American accent when he's asked to, as in The Professional, and two, he's also known for being in like The Fifth Element, in Sid and Nancy, Bram Stoker's Dracula, all kinds of stuff. I honestly could not tell you with any good conscience what Gary Oldman looks like. He looks like Sid he, Vicious because he played Sid he, Vicious in Sid and Nancy. 
He looks so different in every single movie that he's in. I I don't know what he looks like. I, if, unless that's what he looks like on that like cell phone commercial he was doing maybe about <laughs> five years ago. But he yeah, looks yeah, so kind of. different. Like he was, yeah, he was Sid Vicious in Sid and Nancy, Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, one of my favorite things that he, uh, like, big dick swing move that he did was he played, I can't even think of the character's name, but he was in the movie Hannibal, the sequel to yeah. Silence of the Lambs. He said, if I don't get taught billing, don't put me in the credits. Right. And they're like, well, you know Anthony Hopkins is going to get taught billing, right? And he's like, then don't put me in the credits. And they did it. Yeah. He's like, he's a, he's in the movie. He's the guy <laughs> in the wheelchair with the gnawed off face. Yeah. And he's not in the credits of that movie at all. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I loved him in, in weird movies like The Fifth Element. He never interacts with the main character in that film. It's right. like a parallel storyline as the villain. And he was great as the psycho drug dealing cop in The Professional, which is a problematic film now, but still a good action movie. All right, moving on. March the 22nd, 1923. French mime, uh, Marceau Marceau. Marceau Marceau is one of three mimes that I can name off the top of my head, and the other two are Shields and Yarnell. <laughs> who, who, may, who may be husband and wife, and they may also be brother and sister, or they may also be husband and wife slash brother and sister. I, I don't know. I only remember Shields and Yarnell and Marceau Marceau and Mummenchance. Which is technically, I don't know if that they're mimes or more like people dressed in costumes who have toilet paper incorporated into their masks, but that's what I know for mimery. Yeah, I, I don't know why anybody becomes a mime. It doesn't seem like a very lucrative business. <laughs> yeah, there was like a lot of backlash against mimes at one point. I think there was a Bruce Willis movie that made a reference to it as well. And our friend there, Jim, with his band Immortal Alice, had a song called Mime Kill. It was... Uh, <laughs> There was a, a, a mime meme uh, going on at that point in time. Uh, more recently, though, there's been a series of horror movies called The Terrifier. And the actor that plays Art the Clown, he's actually a mime. Oh. And that worked out pretty well because the clown Art emotes very, very well. So the, the, for once, mime, miming came in handy. For, for me, mimes will always be the enemies of clowns and shakes the clown. <laughs> Do you remember that when the mimes would, the, the, the clowns would get drunk and go beat the mimes up in the park? <laughs> <laughs> and then, was it Shakes was hiding out and was hiding out in the mime class? And Robin Williams was Mime Jerry, the guy who was teaching all the mimes how to be mimes anyway. It's a funny movie if you've never seen it. Actually, Robin Williams started out doing mime work too. Right? Yep. All right, next up. March 23rd, 1953, the Queen of Funk, Shaka Khan. First Who? woman, Shaka Khan. Who? Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan, everybody, everybody, Shaka, Shaka Khan. Khan. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that, ironically enough, or not ironically enough, that's the, that's the beginning of her number one crossover hit, I Feel For You, which was the very first song to feature a rap artist duet with her that went to number one. Yeah, that was a that song was written by Prince. Yep. And I don't really know much of Shaka Khan outside of that song. That I, I guess it wasn't in my uh, my spectrum of listening to, but I've gone back and because I remember it was like at the beginning of the song, it's like they kept saying her name, which is what we were referencing there. Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. And I was like, at the time, you know, I was like angry teenager. I was like, who the hell 
is she? But apparently she had quite the funk career in the 70s that I was oblivious to. Wasn't a big market, at least radio market, for funk here in where we are up here in, you know, sort of New England. And right. it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a subgenre that just didn't get a lot of, of airplay in the places that, that I went to, except for, and you may remember it too, was like where I heard music like this was at Hot Wheels Skating Rink. That was uh-huh. the only place that I heard like George Clinton and Funkadelic and, and Boomerang and the other bands that were funk bands at the time. And that was the only place that ever played them. So I would hear them there. So that's like my, I think my first experience with her was when she was background singing on one of the songs that I probably heard at Hot Wheels. And then later when she got more mainstream in the 80s, I recognized your voice based on, just based on that. But I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't name a Shaka Khan song outside of I Feel For You. Um, apparently she did I'm Every Woman. Oh, okay. Which, yeah. Which is a bold statement to make. <laughs> right. All right, and then moving on to the 24th American actress and magic show host, born in 1974, Allison Hannigan. And Vampire Hunter, if I remember her yes. correctly. Yep. From uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, she was, uh, that's kind of where she got her start there, and she was also in American Pie. She mm-hmm. was the flautist, as yes. they say. And to this day however many years later i don't remember what year that movie came out it was in the 90s though so we're we're talking like around 25 years later right you cannot say the phrase and then this one time somebody will bust in with at band camp camp. right yeah so i remember when she when i started to see her when i was watching buffy the vampire slayer when that was on every week and i thought oh wow that's cool that she she made the transition over to tv like this little teeny tiny role to where she had a much bigger impact on plot and stuff. And she was a good actress. Yeah. And these days she is the host of Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Ah. And it's a pretty soft gig for her, I'd say. You know, all she has to do, she doesn't do any of the hard work. You know, (laughs) she just does the, uh, she's a host like Ryan Seacrest. Right. And she does a great job. Just has to show up in Vegas, you know, once once or twice a month to do all the filming. And good for her. That's a good gig for her. Nice. All right, moving on to the 25th. March 25th, 1965, American actress Sarah Jessica Parker, who I know from one, she was married to Matthew Broderick for a while. Yep. Right? I think and she still is. I think she still is. And two, she was probably she's probably best known for being in like nine million seasons of the HBO show Sex in the City. But I remember her from when she was on a short-lived TV show right in my formative years called Square Pegs. She was the one of the two main characters in this high school, and she was sort of nerdy. Her friend was kind of nerdy too, but they weren't popular. And they had two friends yeah. who were punk rockers, and that was my introduction, sort of, to punk rock. Was that show? You know what? I I don't think I ever watched the show, and if I did, I don't remember. But I could hum and sing most of that theme song. <laughs> yes, the theme uh, song by the waitresses. The, yes. Uh, 80s. I don't want. I want. I don't want to call them a new wave band because they were more proto punk or post punk. But right. whatever. Uh, the waitresses who were really popular at the time as well too, and did the theme song to that show. Yep. And I'm quite sure that all of my Halloween enthusiasts will come at me with all guns firing if I don't mention that she was in Hocus Pocus. Ah uh, yes. I just went to Salem with my girlfriend, and her picture is literally all over that city. That, oh, there yeah, are, there sure. are more Hocus Pocus, Pocus pictures in that city than there are lamp posts. 
Well, well, they just filmed and released Hocus Pocus too. So yeah, that's, that's, that's probably uh, why. That's yeah. Well, it's a you know it is a touristy area. Yep. And then wrapping up the birthdays, March the twenty sixth, nineteen forty nine, American actress and songstress Vicky Lawrence. Ah. Oh. Probably best known for her hit song, "The Night The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia." I think it's called. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm sure that's where people remember her from. I always remember her as the one that wasn't Carol Burnett on the Carol Burnett show. Yeah, well, funny about that. The reason why she got the gig on the Carol Burnett show is they were looking for somebody that resembled Carol Burnett. Right. They wanted somebody so the, so they could use her in different sketches that she would be a lookalike, you know, right. for, you know, for Carol Burnett on the show. And then she ended up having her own fairly successful career because they gave her her own sitcom called Mama's Family. Yes, which was based great. On, yeah, which was based on a character that she used to do on the Carol Burnett show. And it and it was it was her and Carol Burnett was on was on Mama's Family too as Eunice, her daughter. Um, yep. Fred Berry was her son. I forget who played. And Harvey Corman too, right? Harvey Harvey Corman wasn't on wasn't on Mama's Family, but he was on he was on the Carol Burnett show. Okay. I used to love Mama's Family. I watched that show yeah. like a lot. Even in syndication. Yeah, that show lived on in syndication for forever. It was wicked funny. Yeah, she certainly did had more success with that show than she did with that music career of hers. <laughs> Cause all that did was spawn worst song ever okay jeff <laughs> we got a challenge ahead of us today because i had a hard time finding information about this uh young gentleman tell us about today's well, song well so the reason that you found a hard time you had a hard time finding a lot of information about this young gentleman is because his career is just getting off the ground okay he's like a stallion in the gate getting ready to run a race and here's okay. our opportunity to just trip him as he comes out of the gate Plant his face in the dirt right outside the gate, and then hopefully his career will, will be over. No, I'm not going to say that. But we're talking about a guy named Steven Sanchez who has a very popular song right now, right now, in real time, called Until I Found You. Georgia, I got a question. Why does this sound so horrible? <laughs> this sounds like it was recorded in a Dixie cup for Christ's sake. Yeah, it's and that's the reason that it's it's the worst song. Well, half of the reason it's here for the worst song ever. This is a Jeff McLarge huge pick because it's distractingly echoey and tinny. Like he recorded this song with his head in a galvanized trash can or he was being recorded in an empty basketball stadium in a uh, elementary school. I don't understand why the production is so terrible, and it's grating to listen to. As I do, I try to listen to as much of an artist as I can during the day before we record the segment. Now, our friend Mr. Sanchez over here, he did not come up in music 
the traditional way, although right. it is fast becoming the traditional way. He was a TikToker. Charlie Puth is you know, way into success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he bad babied his way into success right. without Dr. Phil. Right. Well, why don't you pick up a guitar and go on that TikTok? So, yeah, he was a, a TikTok star. and uh, But there is no reason for a recording that's out in the mainstream to be this bad. Yeah. Now, I used to play in bands. We talked about that before. Yes. And it's not like Sanchez over here is in his friend's living room with a four-track analog recorder, you know, telling his sister to be quiet while he records. No, this was done in, in a studio. Why does this sound so bad? You know how I can tell it wasn't done in, in his friend's living room with a four-track uh, analog recorder? Because it doesn't sound that good. That's how I can tell. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I, like I remember hearing my my voice recorded singing for the first time, and like that's what I sound like. Add more reverb. So that's I think that's what he did. Right. Except for he probably said the guitar sound like too. Yeah, <laughs> let's turn the treble up. <laughs> you know, right? And uh, take the bass out of it completely. So so while we're having more reverb. So while I mean while we're we're talking plenty of of smack here about Stephen Sanchez's song the song yep. in and of itself if it was recorded differently isn't bad it's, it's got a lot to like in it it's not super duper long it's a sort of standard issue pop love song it harkens back to the music of the 1950s it's like doo-wop it's got a waltz beat the lyrics are sort of puppy lovish but not terrible i went and i found some like uh live performances like he was on seth meyers yep performing it and the live performance of it. This is a good song. Yes. I actually like this song. Yes. You know, I don't understand why somebody like, we'll say your, your offspring, I'm not going to call them your children. Somebody like your offspring's my, age. My roommates. I don't know why, they, I don't know why your roommates like it, <laughs> but, or, or people their age would like it because I don't know. Is there a big call for waltzes these days? This is a waltz. This is one, two, three, one, two, three. This is a waltz song, and it sounds like something from the early, yeah, like we just said, from like the early doo-wop days. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong. This before you get to the chorus. This is crazy by Patsy Cline. It it very. It's the much, same song. It's almost the same song. I played them together, like next yep. to each other, and I was like, oh yeah, this is a. It's the same, but I mean, it's that's a known structure. It's it it's like if the song was a cha cha cha, it's gonna be a cha cha cha. Doesn't matter what song it is, right? It, it just is. So right. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Like the song by NXS, "Never Tear You Apart," which this song is just short enough to not overstay its welcome. If you can find a way to get around the horrible reverb, and I don't know how to do it. It's only two minutes and fifty five seconds long, but it feels like it's twenty five minutes and fifty five seconds long because of how it's recorded and it's so. It's so tiring to listen to. Plus, the other half that of the reason that I that I pulled this in for the worst song ever is, as I've been working in my home office listening to terrestrial radio, this song is played approximately every four minutes on the radio station that I have tuned in my downstairs office. So for every four minutes, two minutes and 55 seconds of that is this song. Over and over <laughs> and over again. So in real time, I mean, not when you uh, listeners are hearing this, in real time... Our friend Steven Sanchez is actually playing in Boston tomorrow night. Right. Tickets are, as Ticketmaster is telling me, going fast. Tickets are going fast. And I don't understand how. Because one, 
like, I can only assume it's going to be a very short show. Yeah. I mean, how many songs does this guy have, he has, right? He has four. Like, there's no album. He's got. This is the first single that's mass produced, right? This no, is the first. Major no, he label. has a full album. Does he? He okay. has a full album, and that's another thing too. I listened to the album today, and you know what came to my mind? I said, "This is railroad music. <laughs> this is box. It sounds like Boxcar Willie." Right. Now, there's people out there saying to themselves, just like I said to myself when I was 12 years old, seeing the commercials on TV for the first time. Who the hell is Boxcar Willie? Boxcar Willie. Right. Yeah. So it's it's railroad music. It's a combination of folk and country and western, right? Put to, you know, put together, and that's what this guy Sanchez. This is what the majority of his music is like. And I actually went and I listened to Boxcar Willie album today too. <laughs> Which one had more reverb? Uh, hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get over the sound of the chugging train. Um, yeah, hard to say. So- yeah. The tickets for this show, the venue he's playing at is small. It only holds like 500 people. Right. But the tickets to this show are $100, Jeff. $100 oh. plus. That's a lot to see a guy who sounds like he's singing at the bottom of an empty YMCA pool. Right, yeah. It's like, oh, Christ, I left my Maxwell House empty coffee can at home. <laughs> what am I going to do? I already have one ear that doesn't work. I don't need one ear that's mad at me. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so speaking of songs and uh, traditional folk songs, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Yay, Jeff. All right, lay it on. All right. Uh, yep. So colloquially known here in the States as you take the high road, I'll take the low road, and I'll be in Scotland before you. Uh, what is that actual, what is the name of that song? I'm going to guess it's probably something that was written by Robert Burns, so it's got a name that's like Gergen Flurm. Or, or something. <laughs> um, I don't know. No idea. Uh, this this Scottish guy's kilt song. How's that? Or my guess. All right. So the name of the song is Loch Lomond. I was pretty or, close with Gergen Gergen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I almost laughed. Or also known as the Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. Because the li- that's actually the first lyrics in the song. Uh, it's, that's actually the second verse. But the ones that we know is you'll take the high road and I'll take the low road. I'll be in Scotland before ye. But me and my true love will never meet again on the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. Oh. So, yeah, the name of that song is Loch Lomond. So that's where the Loch Ness's cousin lives. I get it. Loch Newman. Yes. Loch, Loch Norman. And uh, your friends and mine, Marillion, used to do a cover of it called Margaret, which is the name of your daughter. Oh, We've come full circle. Amazing. So that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Seven days. Seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends about it. Do it now before the world comes to an end. Any minute. It's coming. Any day now.